in Philippians chapter 3 as we are slowly making our way through the book of Philippians. Uh, I've really enjoyed walking through Philippians. It's one of my favorite books because it describes what a mature church looks like and how a mature church works and operates and lives and moves and has their being. And, and uh, I, I was watching a movie this week, and I'm, I'm not a big movie guy, but uh, occasionally I'll have time and I will stop and I'll watch a movie. And there was this moment at the, at the movie, it was kind of the climax, when like all of the emotional tension of the movie was building, the conflict was there, there was struggle in the world, and, and the person was driving in the car, and as the person was driving in the car, there was all of these flashback scenes to everything else that had happened in the movie. Are you familiar with these kinds of scenes. It's like there's a picture of their kids running in a field, and there's somebody that says something to them, and there's somebody else that calls them out on something, and there's all of this like story where it's like bringing everything back together again, and you get invited into like the lead character's mind and their thoughts for a moment as they have these flashback scenes to their whole life and everything that has happened up until this point in the movie, and typically after that point, there's a moment of transformation. There's a moment of decision. There's a moment where somebody decides, like that song says, there's a lion inside of me, so I'm going to get up and praise. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something. I'm going to respond. I'm going to become the hero that I need to be. I'm going to make the choices that I need to make. I'm going to live the way that I'm called to live. I'm going to do the thing that I need to do. But there's this moment of reflection that comes before all of that. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, is sitting in the prison that he will ultimately die in. And if we don't think that Paul is looking back on his life and having reflections of who he was, who he is now, who he's been, what God has done, how Jesus has saved him, he is having this flashback moment in his mind where all of the scenes of his life are flashing before him. The young Paul, who was filled with zeal and passion and was a Pharisee, who held the coats of all of the other guys as they stoned Stephen. The, the Paul that was growing and building and, and, and learning, the Paul that met Jesus, the Paul that had this experience on the road, Paul over and over again, the salvation moment, Paul confronting Peter, Paul having this moment where he goes on these missionary journeys, Paul having relational fallouts with people, Paul recovering, Paul pastoring his churches. I wonder whose faces he's, he looks at. I wonder what stories he tells. I wonder what he reflects on as he looks back on his entire life and starts thinking about, what do I do now? This is a passage that's all about transformation. It's about Paul telling us about his personal revolution. It's about Paul saying, this is who I used to be, and this is who I am now. This is what I used to believe, and this is what I believe now. This is what I once held dear, and this is what I treasure the most now. It's Paul looking back on his entire life and saying there was a specific direction that my life was headed. There was a specific way that I was going, but thanks be to God, there was a moment of transformation. There was a moment that changed everything. And if all of us were to have that reflection moment while we were driving in the car, I wonder what we would think about I wonder what would flash in our minds. I wonder whose faces we would see. I wonder what stories we would tell. I wonder what moment would matter. I wonder what things we would say. This used to be the most important thing to me. This used to be the thing that I treasured. But then I met Jesus and suddenly everything changed. 
I think many of us in the room could have the same story. I think many of us in the room would have the same reflections. And what Paul is ultimately sharing with us is how we change. This is how we change. This is how we experience transformation. The Bible calls it sanctification. This is how we're created in his image. This is how we're transformed. This is how we step out of our flesh and into our spirit. This is how we move out of our old life and into our new life. This is how we become who God has called us to be. But he starts with a warning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, it starts with this. Finally, my dear brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Right? The finally is, is because I've been going for two chapters telling you awesome stuff. And finally, here's what I want to tell you. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a lion inside of you, so get up and praise him. Right? That's what he's saying. It's just what we just saying. Rejoice in him. I, because of all the things that I've already told you, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. I can always, you can always trust this. Rejoice in the Lord. If you don't know what to do, rejoice in the Lord. If you don't know where you're going, rejoice in the Lord. If you don't know what the next steps are, rejoice in the Lord. Worship becomes our weapon. And so we praise him. We worship him into the spaces that he's calling us to live. And so I have no trouble telling you, rejoice in him. Worship him. Praise him. Thank him. Be gracious to him. But then he gives this warning. Look out for the what? Dogs. Paul is feisty. Paul is not, like, he does not... He does not hold back. I kind of like that about Paul. He's like, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dog. And he's not like my dog. He's like, no, dog, don't look out for the dogs. And he says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What does that mean? So here's who Paul's talking about. He's talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people who were in Philippi and who had made their way into many of the other churches. And the biggest question that the Judaizers cared about is this question. I am more Jewish than you are. That was the thing that mattered the most to them. And so the old laws, the old practices, the way of living that they were called to in the Old Testament was all that mattered to them. And the Judaizers saw it as a huge threat that Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming to the faith because Jesus had opened the doors of the kingdom to everybody. And Paul was the leading voice for this. Paul was the one who was saying the kingdom of God is for everybody. And so Gentile or Jew, whoever you are, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, from whatever family that you are, the kingdom of God is available to you. This is what Paul's whole ministry was built on. This is what Paul's entire theology was built on. And there is this group of people who are at war with this, who are saying, no, 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 I'm more Jewish than you are. When I was 10 years old, I got in an argument with my best friend Jason Adams over who was the better Christian. I remember this. We were hanging out. I don't remember a lot from my childhood. I don't know why I remember this. We were hanging out at the playground, and Jason said something mean to somebody, and I was like, I'm a better Christian than you, Jason. I wouldn't have said that. And I can remember we argued. He was like, no, I'm a better Christian because I saw you do something bad the other day. You cheated in marbles or something. I don't know what it was. You made a bad baseball card trade that worked to your advantage. Like, I don't know what it was, but there was this back and forth that was going on. I remember going home and I remember saying to my mom, I just got in a big argument because I said I was a better Christian and I am a better Christian. And my mom was like, knock it off. None of you are better Christians. None of us deserve the grace of God. You both stink. You're both sinners. You're both in need of grace. Like, this is, this is what you tell a 10-year-old. 
old, apparently. Like, like you, you are both a mess. There's no standard or hierarchy in our faith. There's no grading scale of righteousness and holiness. There is just Jesus crucified and his grace and his forgiveness given to all of us. And the Judaizers didn't understand this. Because what the Judaizers were doing was they were saying to the Gentiles, not only do you have to follow all the Levitical law, not only do you have to follow all the laws that we followed when we were growing up, you also, when you come to faith, whether you're an adult or not, you have to be circumcised. And Paul's like, you dogs, you're not doing something faithful. You're just mutilating yourself. Strong language from Paul. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, beware of those who try to use their resume of righteousness against you. Beware of those who call you to standards of holiness that Jesus doesn't call you to. Beware of those who try and apply their law to your life and not God's law to your life. They are evildoers. They are dogs. And all they are doing is mutilating the flesh. Beware. Be aware of this. Be afraid of this because this is coming. But I love Paul because he's feisty. So Paul says, okay, but just for the sake of argument, if you want to play the game over who's the better Jew, let's talk about that. Here's what he says in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, the glory in Jesus Christ, and put no confidence in what? In the flesh. Listen, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have what? More. Paul is so feisty. <laughs> right? Anybody else with me on this? Like, he just, he just goes. He's just like, yeah, okay, you want to play the, the resume of righteousness game? Oh, you're not going to win that either right? I don't think we need to play that game because God's grace is sufficient and God's grace is all we need. But if you want to play the resume of righteousness game, let's play that game because I'll win also. I wish I could do this sometimes. Are you with me? I wish when people came and called me out on stuff that I could say, okay, you want to play that game? Let's, let's play that game. Let me talk about my resume of righteousness. Let's talk about how I've been faithful and pastoring in the church for 30 years. Let's talk about my upbringing. Let's talk about my skills. Let's talk about my family. Let's talk about my background. Let's talk about the sins I have committed and haven't committed. Let's talk about my faithfulness. Let's talk about all of those things. Paul goes in. He says, if anyone else thinks he has any reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am what? Blameless. Here's what he goes in. He goes in on seven things. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, which has to do with his family, right? My family knew the laws. If we're going to talk about being the better Jew, well, my family knew the laws on day eight, which is exactly the day it's supposed to happen. Not when I'm a grown-up. On day eight is when I got circumcised. That's what the Bible tells me. That's what I'm supposed to do. Of the nation of Israel, he's talking about his ethnicity. This is where I'm born. I'm born into this ethnicity, the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking about his background, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's talking about his skills. He's like, you want to debate the law? I promise you I'll win. You want to talk about this? I promise you I'll win. Uh, as to the law, a Pharisee. He's talking about his knowledge. As to my zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's talking about his passion. As to righteousness, I am blameless. Let's talk about obedience. 
He goes into all of those things and gives his resume of righteousness, the things that he believed he mattered, that mattered the most to him. And remember, he's thinking back. He's flashing back to who he was because there was a moment when his resume of righteousness was the most important thing to him, where it was the thing that mattered most. Paul was proud to be a Pharisee. He was proud to be a persecutor of the church. He was proud of his zeal and his passion and his obedience and his ethnicity and his background. All of those things he cared about. But our salvation and our hope are not built on our resume of righteousness. And Paul began to learn this. And I wonder if we made those lists, what would be on our list? If we made a list of our resume of righteousness, what would you put on it? Would it be your faithfulness? Would it be your obedience? Would it be your suffering? Would it be your family or your background or your ethnicity? Would it be your integrity or your knowledge or your accomplishment? Would it be your skills or your reputation? Would it be the relationships that you made? Would it be who you know? Would it be what you've built? Would it be what you have? Would it be what you own? Would it be what you look like? What would it be that is in your resume of righteousness that when someone comes at you, you're like, okay, if you want to play that game, here's my resume of righteousness. Because Paul throws all of that out there. And he's reflecting on all of these things. The things that used to be the most important. But compared to Jesus' grace, Paul has something to say about all of those things. And the reason why is because Paul found something far greater than his own resume of righteousness. Paul found something worth building his life on that was way more significant than building, creating, developing a resume of righteousness. Paul goes in, and Paul understands this because Jesus understood this. Jesus talked about this over and over and over again. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins telling these parables. And in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then with all of his joy, he went and sold everything he had to have that field. He's saying, listen, when you find the kingdom of God... When you find the grace of God, when you find the goodness of God, when you find the glory of God, when you find what God wants for you and desires for you, all of the other things, all of your resume of righteousness, all of the things that you built your life on, you sell all of those things in order to get the kingdom. He goes on in the second, I'm not going to try and catch that. He goes on in the second one and says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he had bought it. When you find the kingdom, you give up everything to have it, is what Jesus is saying. When you find the real treasure, the previous treasures don't seem to matter. And so the key verse in this section is verse 7, and here's what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had in building my resume of righteousness, I count it as loss in comparison to knowing him. Whatever I've built my life on, whatever I've built my holiness and my righteousness and all of the things that matter the most to me, all of those things are nothing in comparison to the glory and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. So I throw out my resume of righteousness. I throw out all the things that I believe that would save me because when I found Jesus, those things don't matter because my salvation is in Jesus and Jesus crucified. My hope is in Jesus and Jesus resurrected. Everything that I have is not 
not now built on my activities of grace. It's built on God's activity of salvation. And if I'm going to put my faith in something, I'm going to put my faith in his grace and his goodness and his righteousness. Verse 8, indeed, I count what? Let's get it up there. What do I count? We can say, we can say that word. Okay. We're not going to do any more you guys speaking. It's, it's, not, it's not working. I count everything as a loss. Everything. Everything I've built, everything I have, everything I own, everything I've done, everything is a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is significant. Nothing else is ultimate compared to knowing Jesus. And man, I get so stressed and I get so anxious about so many things. I don't know if you guys are with me. I get anxious about my job. I get anxious about my finances. I get anxious about the church's budget. I get anxious about my kids. I get anxious about my kids being in college and how we figure that out. I get anxious about my marriage. I got anxious about a football game last night. Like, I get anxious about so many things. I waste so much energy and time and investment on so many things. And all of those things are nothing. They are a loss. They compare nothing to the glory of knowing Jesus. It's all a loss. And the question I want to ask today is, do we live as if that's true? Do we live as if it's true that everything I've built, everything I have, we are taking nothing with us to heaven? And so do we just believe and trust that the greatest thing that I'm going to do here is to know him, to walk with him, to love him, to serve him, to raise children who know him and love him and walk with him and serve him. This is the greatest thing that I'm going to do. So do we live as if that's true? Do we parent as if that's true? Do we disciple others as if that's true? Do we evangelize as if that's true? Do we tell others about Jesus as if that's true? Do we live in such a way that everything else is a loss except for Jesus? This is super, super challenging. And Paul, at the end of his life, is looking back and saying, Guys, this is all that matters. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them as garbage. Scripture says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to knowing him. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but what comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think God has a special place in his heart for faith. I think God loves generosity. I think he loves it when his people are generous. I think God loves unconditional kindness. I think he loves it when we unconditionally love. I think God loves grace and he loves forgiveness. But I think God responds in a special way to faith. Are you with me? I think all throughout scripture, when we say, I don't know what's happening and I don't know what to trust and I'm tempted to trust all of these other things that I've trusted my whole life in, but you're asking me to trust you and we choose to trust him, there is something special that happens in the heart of God. And I would say there's something special that happens in the heart of God's people. We've got a tool that we use to train in this, and many of you have seen this before, but I want to just simply show you again. And it's this journey of how we change and how we transformed. All change happens, according to Walter Brueggemann, in the space between orientation and reorientation. 
And so this is a picture of what the people of God experienced over and over and over again in Scripture. When, when Benton was talking about the Israelites, this is the journey of the Israelites in the desert. Is we start and we're oriented into a certain way, right? So Paul is saying, my orientation was what? It was the law. It was my resume of righteousness. It was that I'm going to be a better Jew or a better Christian than everybody else. This is what my life was oriented around. And then we have these moments of disorientation. The Bible calls these the wilderness or the desert. Right? We have these moments where what we thought we believed is shown to be lacking. The thing that we put our trust and hope in is shown not to fulfill the thing that we thought it was. I don't know if you've ever gotten the job and gotten the corner office and you thought, now that I have this, everything's going to be great. And it wasn't all great. I don't know if you ever went out and bought something. You bought a new outfit or you bought a boat or you bought a car and you thought, this is the thing that's going to make me happy. Once I have this, everything is going to be good. And it didn't fulfill you and it didn't fill you up. I, I, I don't know if when you were single like me, you thought, well, when, once I get married, everything's going to be perfect. Once I find the one, everything's going to be amazing. Everything's going to be incredible. And not everything is incredible. It's actually harder sometimes, <laughs> right? It doesn't solve everything. And so the things that we believed are, are going to give us life, don't give us life. And so can we get that back up there? So we go from orientation to disorientation. We go into the wilderness. But in the wilderness, there is good for us to discover. There's something beautiful for us to find. There is something that changes us and transforms us and makes us more like Christ. And so we awaken to what God has for us in the wilderness. But we become aligned to who he's called us to be in the wilderness as well. So God's people, when they went into the desert, had to learn how to not be slaves. They had, they had to learn that their identity is rooted in Christ, that there is something new that is happening, that there is a new way of living, and they had to learn how to be human again before they could go take the land. And so oftentimes what happens in our life is before we experience breakthrough, we experience the desert. In Numbers chapter 13 there's this story. It's a beautiful story. And I just thought this is kind of a prophetic picture for us today. Uh, God's people are right on the precipice of the promised land. They've been through their disorientation. They've been through the desert. They've walked through that struggle. And they're right on the edge of reorientation. They're right on the edge of taking the promised land that God had promised them. God says, you're going to go through the desert. You're going to be in the desert. But there's a land that I've given you. And the land is full of milk and honey. Which I don't know what that means. But I think it's good. Right? And there's this great thing out in front of us. And you're going to possess that land. And you're going to take that land. And so they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send some spies into the land. Just to make sure it's safe before we all caravan in there. So they send 12 spies. 12 spies are sent to check out the promised land. I don't know how they sent them. My guess is they went off in different directions. My guess is they went off in different spots. That's how I think spies would work. Uh, I think they were looking and checking it out, seeing who's there, seeing could we take the land? Could we live in the land? We've got to remember this isn't uh, our culture today. This is a violent culture where if you want land, you take it, you fight for it, you own it. It was very different. There were not fortified cities in a lot of different places. It was just land, and there wasn't land ownership, and there wasn't sheriffs and law, and all of these things that we have today. It wasn't like, I'm just going to go look at Zillow and see if I can move to this neighborhood, because this neighborhood's really nice. It was much bigger and, and more significant than that. 
12 spies are sent into the land. 10 of those spies come back and say, no way. We can't have it. They say, actually, there's giants in the land. We will never take it. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. It seems impossible to take that land. But two of them say, it's flowing with milk and honey, guys. Like, it's the promised land. It's beautiful. And here's what happened in this moment of transformation, in this moment of growth, in this moment that all of us face, there is this moment where we can see the challenges in front of us, the giants that are in front of us. We can see them as opportunities or we can see them as obstacles. We can look at it and say, this is an opportunity for God to show his glory. This is an opportunity for God to show his goodness. This is an opportunity for God to show up again and be faithful. Or we can say, this is impossible. Numbers verse 20, uh, chapter 13, verse 25 says, At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying in the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people in Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them all and the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They were like, look at this. This is, there's some watermelon or something. I don't know what it was. There's some corn, and it's delicious. Whatever it was, it's great. Uh, they, they, and, and they told him, we came to the land in which you sent it. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It's great. But then this word pops up, beginning of verse 28 there. Everything's great. Everything's beautiful. Everything's amazing. However, but, I don't know if you've ever been there, where you're like, I can see it in my head. I can picture how it could be. I can see how, I, how, how God could break through. I could see all the ways, but there's this one thing that won't activate my faith. There's this one thing that's holding me back. There's this one fear. There's this one but. There's this one however. And there, however, is that the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, which I don't know what that means, but those guys are scary, right? There's all of this scary stuff in the land. What are the howevers and the buts you're putting on God right now? What are the things that you're looking at the promised land, you're facing them right now, and you see how God could break through, but you're saying, but. But I don't think it can happen because of this. However, however it can't happen because of dot, dot, dot. And we're filling in the blanks in all of those spots. Here's what begins to happen with the reports that come back. They come back with two key things that they say are happening. They say we can't attack, which is the negativity trap, right? And we can all fall into this negativity trap. We can't attack because they're bigger than us, because they're stronger than us. There's no way we can win. Sometimes there are obstacles to our growth and to our faith that seem bigger than what we can overcome and what we can walk through. And we look at it and we say we can't. We can't. We can't do it. And then the second is the comparison trap. They say, but they're stronger than us. We get into this place where not only do we get negative, but we start comparing ourselves to other people. Well, God gives this person breakthrough, but not me. I've seen how God works in that person's life. I've seen miracles happen for them. I've seen faithfulness happen in their life. I've seen amazing things happen here, but that just doesn't happen to me. And we compare others' best moments with our worst moments. We just say, it can't happen. I, I, 
When I was a, a, a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, I, I managed a, a staff of people, and, and I was in a room one day with one of my direct reports, and he was just like pouring his heart out to me. He was like, ministry is not going well. Everything is so hard. He said, I had a kidney stone this week. That's why I wasn't in the office. Like, I'm fighting with my wife. We can't pay the bills right now. Not, there's no fruit in my ministry, and he's in tears in my office. And one of our younger staff, like, opens the door to my office with, like, all this zeal and passion and excitement. And he goes, hey, guys, some guy from the church just gave me a new car. And my friend looked at me, and he was like, why does God love him more than me? He said it jokingly true. <laughs> right? This is what we do sometimes. We look at the highlights of what God has done for others and we look at the hard points that we're in when we're in the middle of the wilderness, when we're in the middle of the desert, and it feels like it's the darkest, and there's no way that we're going to get breakthrough, and we start comparing. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up once and let's occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said this, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger. And they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land. That they had spied, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. What they did was they spread a bad report among the people. Can I tell you what happens in unhealthy churches? Negativity spreads. Bad news spreads. Gossip spreads. Lies, slander, and untruth spreads because one person starts spouting it and another person starts believing it and another person tells another person and another person tells another person and suddenly there is a bad report that has affected our faith. Negativity can grow in churches, but can I tell you the good news? Faith can also. When you start hearing the stories of how God is moving and working, when you start hearing the stories of how we choose to love each other and care for each other and walk in grace with one another, when we choose the stories to tell that are those stories, what happens is faith begins to grow in a community and all of a sudden everybody's faith rises up just a little bit because the community as a whole is experiencing God's graciousness. I was a basketball coach for many years. And there's nowhere else where you can understand how negativity spreads than by watching a sports team. Have you ever watched a sports team when things start to go wrong? This is the evidence of a good coach in those moments, right? Because what will happen is you're playing and things start to go wrong. The other team starts to make a comeback. Sports is a game of momentum. And so the momentum all gets on their side and everything feels like it's rolling downhill. And in unhealthy cultures, what happens is people start yelling at one another. People start blaming one another. People start pointing fingers at one another. People start saying, it's your fault that this is happening. It's because you did this, that this is happening. It's because of this, that this is happening. And it spreads throughout the team and everyone starts to blame and everyone starts to point fingers and everyone starts to get negative and everyone starts to yell instead of something better. My, my high school coach used to say this to us. I love this phrase. I've used it every team I've ever coached on. When we would put our heads down, right, the other team goes on a 15-point run and I'm walking down the court like this. He would go, Hardman, no faces. That was his thing, no faces. And what he meant is we never let the other team know that we're discouraged. 
We never let them know that we're frustrated. We never let them, because once they see that, it raises their momentum, right? I don't know if you've ever been playing a sport and you're like, we just took their heart. You can go then, right? Believe me, I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. I've watched this for a really long time. Like, I've watched teams take our heart over and over and over again, right? We think that we have something this year, but we're 0-2. The heart could go away today. Burrow may not start. Like, it could all start again. All of these things can happen. But here's the good news. Faith also spreads. And so there are coaches and there are players, and you can see this all the time, that when things start to go wrong, they draw the team together. And instead of speaking negativity, they speak good news over each other. We can do this. You can do this. You got this. I know you missed that shot. The next one's going to go in. I believe in you. I trust you. That spreads amongst the team. It spreads amongst the church, and it helps everybody grow Here's the problem with the spies in the land. They trusted trusted their senses more than they trusted the Savior. And I'm afraid that I'm in the same spot all the time. So let's go back to Philippians 3. Why does all this matter? Why do the giants in the land matter? Why does faith matter? Why do all of these things matter? Because Paul said, all of that stuff that I once put my faith in, I consider it all loss, everything compared to the kingdom of God. And so invest there. All I've seen, all I've known, all I've built, my resume, the reports of the people, the churches that I've built, the obstacles that I see, the challenge that I'm facing right now as I stand in prison, all of these things are nothing compared to the surpassing glory of following Jesus. And I'm going to double down here. Paul knows, I think, that he's going to die in that prison. I think Paul knows that he's reaching the end of his life. Verse 10, he says, That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, that I become like him in death, And that by any means possible, I would attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul knows the end. And he says, whatever's ahead, it doesn't matter. It's all loss in comparison to knowing Jesus and walking with him. And so what giants are you facing? What are the giants and the obstacles that are in your way that when you look at them, it seems insurmountable? It seems impossible. You've got all these howevers. You've got all these buts. They're big. They're strong. It's impossible. I don't know how God could do it. And what does it look like for you to say, whatever I put my trust in, my ability to fight, my resume of righteousness, the strength of my opponent, whatever that thing is, what does it look like for you to say, it's all loss in comparison to knowing Jesus? Robert and Mary Moffat uh, labored for 10 to 15 years in Botswana as missionaries. And in their 10 to 15 years as missionaries in Botswana, there was no breakthrough. There wasn't even any fruit. They just were there. 
Over and over again serving. Every day they went out. Every day they tried to share the gospel. Every day they tried to proclaim the hope of Jesus. Every day they tried to love and serve and care. Tried to take care of the people that they were called to serve. And every day there was nothing. There was no response. There was no salvations. There was no fruit. It got to the point where their heads of the missionary organization that they were working with said, Hey, I think you guys should leave. Just don't think it's working. Maybe you should try a different city. Maybe you should try a different place. And they said, no, we really believe that God has called us to this place. We're trusting that at some point the breakthrough is going to come. They were in the middle of that desert, right? Right in the middle of it, trying to be faithful, trying to follow where God had called them, trying to do the thing that they believed was obedience, trying to walk faithfully in the space that they'd been called to, but there just wasn't fruit. And so over and over again, they're banging their heads against the wall. And one day a friend from England called them. And said, hey, I just want to pray for you. I just want to send you a gift. What is it that I could send you that would encourage you? What do you want that will encourage you? And they said, you know what we need? We need a communion set. Something like what we've got over there. We need something that will hold the bread and the juice. And the friend from England was like, why do you need a communion set? Like nobody is, (laughs) you don't have a church. There's nobody to take communion with you. And they said, we need it in faith. We're trusting. We're trusting that there's going to be people for us to take communion with. That there's going to be people for us to break bread with. There's going to be people in our homes. We're trusting that God has called us into this space and that God will equip us and keep us in this space. And so could you just send us a communion set? They waited a couple months. At this time, it was a long time to get something from England to Botswana. Uh, Amazon was not as strong back in the day, kids. Uh, and, and all it showed up. They have this package, they open it up, there's this communion set. That day, seven people accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that night, they opened up their communion set. And on that night, they broke bread with new believers, and they had fruit in their ministry. And their boss called them and said, I'm so thankful that you stayed. There are seven people who would not have been in heaven who are here. There are obstacles. And maybe for some of you, it feels like 10, 15 years of toil, of struggle, of no fruit, of not breaking through. The question is not, what do you see? It's what the Savior is asking you to do. The question is not, what have you put your hope and faith in throughout your life? It is, what is God asking you to do? And what does faithfulness look like for you in this moment, in this time, and in this space? And my hope is, Every single one of you has communion set moments in your life. These moments where it's like, there were giants, and it didn't look like God was going to come through, and it didn't look like breakthrough was going to happen, but then it does. So today, as we wrap up, we're going to actually take communion, and we're going to go to the table, and as you take that juice, and as you take that bread, I want you just to remember that story, and I want you just to declare to God, who are the giants that are in front of me? Who are the things? What are the buts and the howevers I'm giving myself? I could do this, but, or I could do this, however. I I could see God moving, but, or I could see God breaking through, however. What are those things that you're saying to yourself? Where have you put your faith and trust? Has it been in your resume of righteousness? Or is it in the grace of Jesus Christ, him crucified and him resurrected? And so we're going to have our prayer team come And for some of you in this room, I I would love it if today you just said, if I'm really being honest, 
If I'm really being truthful, I place my hope in something other than Jesus. And today is the day I want to either give my life to him or I want to recommit my mission and my vision to him. And I want to follow him. And if that's you, we're going to have prayer people on either side who are willing to pray with you and talk with you and counsel you and walk with you. But as we take this time, just think through. Ask Jesus to speak to you. Ask him to say, where are you calling me? What are you inviting me into? Where are you asking me to go? And let's pray that the breakthrough begins to come. So Heavenly Father, we know that there are giants in the land. We know that there are bad reports. We know that there are places where if we were to put our trust in what we see and in the world and in what we've created, that we would put our trust in sinking sand. But we trust that your kingdom is worth everything, that your kingdom is, in, is worth selling everything for, giving up everything for, investing everything for. And so I pray right now that we would be a community that grows in our faith, that grows in our obedience, that grows in our faithfulness, that grows in our trust of one another. I pray that in this place, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would be faith that grows, not negativity. I pray that it would be faith that is built up. I pray that we would be the teammates that surround each other, even in the darkest hours, and say, you can do it. God is working. God is good. I believe in you, and I believe in him, and I trust his goodness. And so we're going to walk in faithfulness through this together, and you're going to have somebody by your side. And whether you're in the desert, and it feels dark, and it feels alone, you're going to have somebody to walk beside you, and you do not have to do this alone. Lord, make that a truth in this place. Make that a principle of our family. Make that the, 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 the energy that flows out of this place. I pray right now that you would deal with the enemy. That you would remove a culture of negativity. And you would replace it with a culture of faith. I pray this in Jesus' holy name.